Welcome to the Scottish Business Network podcast. Hello, I'm Fraser Allen, and in this episode, we have a businesswoman with bags of personality and someone who has had a pretty unusual career path. Following a happy working class upbringing near Glasgow, Sheila Flavel joined the police force, only to be banished by her vindictive boss to some of the nastiest beats in the city, including regular visits to a very creepy mortuary manager. Then, One night, standing in the freezing cold and rain outside a chip shop that had been broken into with only a jar of pickled onions to bring her comfort, Sheila thought, there must be more to life than this. This Damascene moment led to 12 years in the Middle East working for an airline, and then the big move of her career, turning the recruitment company FDI into the hugely successful tech business FTM Group with her now-husband Rod Flavel. It's a rollicking story with lots of laughs, honesty about the ups and downs of her career, and plenty of business insights. This episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the offices of Shepherd and Wedderburn, right next to St Paul's Cathedral in London. I began by asking Sheila about her upbringing. This podcast was created by White Light Media. Find out more about how we can help your business at whitelightmedia.co.uk. When I think back to my very early childhood, um, we had a tenement house or flats and we had an outside toilet shared by seven families. A few of you are smiling, so you, you, you got the scene. We had one room and kitchen and a Galdi bath where on a Friday night was bath night in front of the fire. We all jumped in and out quickly, one at a time. And um, my parents both worked. They worked in the local factory. My mother, um, she was the canteen manager and she felt that was very important. And my father was a, an engineering manager in, in the factory. Um, and uh, well, he worked in a few factories. But, you know, they were very, very working class. And it was, it was a small village and it was a real village life. And I kind of, I, I grew up as a latchkey child where, you know, I came home from school about 4.30 and um, my mother would come in at quarter to five and as she was running into the kitchen taking her coat off, she was putting the chip pan on at the same time. So, it, you know, I grew up with parents who always worked and I realised early on that, you know, I was very well balanced or so I thought. It didn't harm me one bit. And so therefore, when I had my children, I continued to work as well. I had a very happy childhood, very simple childhood. My parents... They didn't want anything more for me than to be happy and get myself a job that they were proud of. Um, I wanted to be a a gym teacher and I applied to Cranfield College in Edinburgh and I was too young and they refused me. So I then applied to become a police cadet in Glasgow at the time and from there on went on to become a police officer. What was was it about the police that appealed to you? Well, I was very active, very highly energetic and... You know, I couldn't bear the thought of sitting in an office. And if you think about it, we didn't have the internet in those days. And, you know, my parents weren't university graduates or anything like that. So going to university was really never on the on the agenda. And I had to kind of figure it out for myself. So, you know, I, I decided to 
I don't know why, joined the police because I thought, you know, that's nice and sporty, you've got to get fit. And and you were patrolling the mean streets of Glasgow, you were out, out on the beat, which is quite unusual for police women in those days. I was, in fact. I joined the police force, and this helped sort of shaped my later thinking. I joined the police force in the mid-70s, and that was before equal pay was introduced. And when equal pay was introduced, I remember the sergeant, uh, he said, oh, the women can't do the same job as the men. And so he, you know, he wanted to set an example of us. And we were very, very few women at that time in the police force. And so he gave us the roughest, worst jobs in the city to demonstrate a point. So he didn't like me anyway, and he didn't like women, but particularly me, for some reason. And I was really young, and I was only five foot four, and in the black uniform, I looked even smaller. So he gave me the the beat, as we called it then, um, with the city, uh, the the fish market, Paddy's Market, for those of you who might know, um, the River Clyde, and the city mortuary. But, <laughs> but being a bit of a survivor, I befriended Jimmy, the mortuary attendant. Do you find this intimidating, or do you actually quite like the challenge? <laughs> well, it was called survival, although I didn't realise it at the time. I mean, Glasgow in the 70s was a bit rough and tough to think about it. So I befriended Jimmy, the mortuary attendant. He's since murdered his wife, but that's another story for another night. <laughs> and on the night shift, I'd go down and I'd ring the bell, and he would, he would come, he wore one of those brown coats that Ronnie Barker would wear and he always wrung his hands and he'd unlock all the door and I'd go in with my little hat and I'd say hello Jimmy he'd say I'll put the kettle on and he'd lock it all behind me but being stupid and gullible you know I didn't think there was a threat or that he was going to murder his wife so and he'd say while, while I'm waiting for the kettle to boil let's play a wee game okay Jimmy what we play tonight he said spot the organ. Now, some of you ladies might have been worried, but being really young, innocent and gullible, I didn't even think about it. So he'd take me into the room where the post-mortem had taken place, and there'd be a cadaver on the table, on this steel table with holes in it, and on the side there'd be a bucket full of organs. And the game was, I had to guess what the organs were. If I guessed them all correct, I didn't get a cup of tea because he went in the huff, so I always had to get one or two wrong. <laughs> and so, I mean, I have so many stories from my days and my years in the Glasgow Police Force, you know, I, I mean, I, I could keep you amused probably all night with the goings-on in the Glasgow Police Force in the 70s, but that's for another time. Well, if you can survive that, you can survive <laughs> anything, I guess. I mean, how long did you stay in the force for? I stayed in the force for four years, and it was one night where I was walking around the streets of Glasgow. It was January, it was pouring with rain. You know the, the hat that the women wear that's got a little skip? And... I had to write something in my notepad and I looked down and all the water soaked my notepad and a chip shop window had been um, broken and I had to stand there for hours waiting for the key holder to arrive and while I was standing there I helped myself to the jar of pickled onions that was on the counter and I thought there's got to be more to life than this. So I went home and I said to my little brother who collected information about aeroplanes find me an aeroplane but it's got to be in a warm country and he found me Gulf Air now in those days again we didn't have internet so we looked at the world atlas as to where Bahrain was and I um, I remember getting the interview and I left the traffic warden whom I knew looking after my car while I had the interview there'd been a news of the world expose in the day before on the Sunday um, and it was about 
the parties and the goings-on in the Middle East. So all these mothers had forbade their daughters from going to the interview. So I was straight in. They checked my pulse and I got the job. <laughs> <laughs> and there I stayed and for 12 years. And you were out there for, for just 12 years, yeah. So you obviously enjoyed life out there. We used to do their in-flight magazine, actually. Funny, but that's a nice story. <laughs> um, so what, what, was like, what did you enjoy about living out there? Well, again, if I thought there was discrimination in the police force, it was nothing to what I experienced in the Middle East. You know, only recently have women been allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, for me, the young girl from the village, you know, this was a huge... We'd never been further than Spain, and only on, I think, two occasions. This was just a, wow, you know, a huge eye-opener. And... Um, the, the average length of stay was two years, and the fact that I stayed 12 years, I did every job the airline had to... I, if, in the end, I had the most senior job that a woman could have, um, where I was in charge of all the cabin crew. So big fish, small pond, Bahrain's a small island. and um, But it was a great experience. Right. And, and I you think enjoyed I, the, the lifestyle out there? I did. I, I had a great time. And my daughter was born out there. In fact, you weren't allowed to get married. I had to get special permission. And you, nobody had ever had a child. So I hid my pregnancy for six months <laughs> until there was no more notches left in the belt. And they wouldn't give me any maternity leave. So I had to take six weeks annual holiday and go back straight away. And I had to work until the day before she was born. And I wouldn't legislate Jeez. any woman had to do that now. But I managed to somehow. Wow. Needs must and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. And then it was back to the, back to the UK. What's, uh, I what left at the time that? of the Gulf War. It was, oh. you know, the war was looming. And, you know, I, I spent my time in Iran, Iraq. I used to go clubbing in Kuwait and Iraq mm. and Iran and all of these places. So, you know... The, you it, went clubbing in Iraq? Oh, God, yeah. Really? With, with, a, with a little hairdress, you know, a little... Um, what you got? A hair lacquer bottle full of vodka. <laughs> <laughs> it was great fun in those days. And uh, I had the worst hangover of my life in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> but anyway, um, after 12 years, the Gulf War was looming. I had one child. I was pregnant with the second. And it was time I had to go back. And I'd never lived in England but um, back I went to Brighton, where I knew nobody. It was November, it was raining, it was cold. We rented a, um, a studio apartment in Brighton Marina, and I remember parking my bag thinking, is this my life? Because remember, I'd had the top, mm. top job of any mm. woman in the airline, and it was all very glamorous, and um, it was, you know, being the queen bee, and then I was a mum, a pregnant one, and no job and nothing. So what, how did you get out of that feeling? What did you do next? Well, nobody really wanted to employ a woman who was very <laughs> pregnant. So I used the time to find a house. We bought a house and got myself organised and um, had the baby and um, tried to get myself a job. And it was as though I had useless mother stamped my forehead. I wanted a job as an HR manager or something quite important. <laughs> and nobody, nobody would give me a job. I got a, a call from Reed's, the, the agency, the high street agency, and they offered me a job as a waitress. So I took it. I borrowed a black skirt and a white shirt from my mother-in-law and off I went to the Metropole Hotel in Brighton and I did um, the Christmas season doing silver set. It was, it was the most difficult job of my life, I tell you, holding those big, those big platters. But it wasn't for me. <laughs> it was a stopgap. But you were happy to just to do that, to, to keep things ticking over. I what? dressed as a bunny rabbit in Churchill Square selling tickets for a free <laughs> prize draw. I made sandwiches and sold them round in the industrial right. estate. 
I just wanted to earn money. I needed to earn money. I had two children to feed, and I did anything just to keep me active. Uh, do you think that work ethic comes partly from your, your background as well? That it's just it's really important just to get out there and get a job done rather than feeling sorry for yourself. I think it's called survival. Mm-hmm. You know, when <laughs> when you you know you go. Oh, you see, in the Middle East, we had no bills to pay. Well, you know, the company paid all your bills, they paid your transportation, they paid your airfares, they paid all your utility bills. You know, there was no tax in your salary. And I came back to England and these brown letters were firing through the letterbox. And, you know, this, remember, I'd left as a young girl Mm. and came back as a mother. And I skipped the whole middle bit. And, you know, it was a big learning curve for me. So how how did you then get from then to setting up FDM, which is obviously turning such a, a big success? Well, I met Rod Flavel, um, the man who changed my life forever. He'd just been fired from his job. He did a, a fallout with his boss. And he, he, he was setting up his own business, and he said to me, he said, I can see something in you, and I don't know what it is, but if you come and work for me, I'll help you find that something. You know, it was as much as that. So I went to work for Rod. He was setting up. FDI as we were then and by me joining the business we created a 50-50 gender split um, and the management split which we have actually maintained from that day to this day 29 years later. Rod had been given um, three times £50,000 so him and two others so that's £150,000 seed capital and, and that went in a flash. We had one Ford Escort, which somebody stole and set on fire. So that was the FDM fleet wiped out overnight. (laughs) And um, the 150,000 went very quickly, as I said. And we were nearly under. uh, Rod had to (coughs) go and collect a cheque from a customer up in Birmingham area. Had he not come back with that cheque, we'd gone bust. You know, nine out of ten businesses go bust whilst in profit, but it's their cash flow that kills them. And we were a good example of that. He came home with the cheque, and the rest is history. We're now a billion-pound company, market value company. We've um, gone from private, we've listed, we've bought it back with the help of private equity, and we've listed again, and we're now in the FTSE 250. But, you know, it's not all been plain sailing, believe me. So you're an IT and business solution provider. Can you explain a bit more about what you do and what benefits you bring to your clients? We, we started off as a a recruitment consultancy back then uh, in 1990 um, and we had one computer and two telephones and we were scrapping about trying to get people to give us contractors to give us CVs so that we could then sell those contractors into companies and make margins. Everybody was doing it and then along the way IR35 came in and what happened was Rod met a chap, he was the next East African Airlines pilot, John Spouse. And John Spouse had set up a business in Hastings. And what he did was he used the old pilot training model um, to create his business. So with that pilot training model is you bring people in, you invest in them, you train them, and then you bond them. And then you um, they, they pay you back through a period of time. So what John was doing is he, he set up a, um, a tech training company where he'd bring young people in, he would pay for their training, and then he'd bond them for two years, and at the end of the, the, he would then put them out to market to work for clients as contractors, although they were his employees, and after two years, they were free to go off and do what they like. 
So we bought John's company, and so our model exit, it remains today. We don't have contractors who work for us and haven't had for many years. It's quite a, a hybrid, quite a unique model where we, we're the largest hire of STEM graduates in the United Kingdom, and this year we'll be hiring uh, into our permanent employee base 3,000 people. And that's uh, women returners, or returners and men as well, uh, ex-forces and graduates, the bulk of them being graduates. We get 100,000 applications a year to join the company. So what we do is we bring them in. We have a, a huge machine to manage this. Um, we train them in one of our centres. We have 19 centres worldwide. We have over 100 trainers who work for us and more than that, classrooms um, all over the world. We um, train them in a number of technologies and cyber and uh, uh, Java and a whole tonne of stuff and anything up to 16 weeks. There are employees, we then send them out to work. Now, over 29 years, we've built a who's who of client list. We have, I don't know, 300, 350 mainstream clients who have who've had and have thousands of our staff. And of course, after two years, we allow our people to migrate into their workforce at no fee. So the clients love it because it's try before you buy. The consultants would never get into these companies, HSBC, all the mainstream banks you could think of, for example, without the help of FDM, um, and they need our program. And so it's a win-win for everyone. And where we get our money from is the difference between what the client pays us in a day rate and what we pay our consultants. Now we've got generations of people who, who've now worked for us. We've got the father, the, 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 the mother, the sons, and it's now going down through the generations. So it's, um, you know, the demand for our service far outweighs the supply. It's a really interesting model and, and very unusual. I mean, are, are there other people trying to do the same sort of thing? Yes, but if you think about it by now, the barriers to entry are pretty high. We've got to payroll all of these people every 30 days, and we might not be paid by our clients mm. for maybe 60, 65 days. So, and we have zero debt in the company. Um, and to be uh, receiving 100,000 applications, you obviously have a very strong reputation. How have you, have you built that up? Well, we've always been diverse, and we've been diverse from before the word diversity came into the corporate language, and that's only a recent thing. You know, and our roots being in Brighton, for those of you who know Brighton, it's very diverse. <laughs> and, you know, you know I, remember, I remember 20 years ago uh, where we had... Um, a couple of our employees were um, transsexual and, you know, they'd come into work with hot pants. You know, we women wouldn't come in with hot pants, but, you know, they did. And they were just, you know, Vicky and Jessica. We, we didn't see them as, as anything but Vicky and Jessica. We've never... We, our best technologists were people who were um, maybe stacking shelves in supermarkets or ta taxi drivers, pe petrol pump attendants. Um, we have 75 different nationalities and cultures who work for us. A huge number of our staff are the first in their families to go to university, state school educated. We measure all of that. And more importantly, we have a zero gender pay gap, which we're really proud of. So we measure all of that and have done for years. And what we find is millennials want to work for companies that share their values. And we want people to work for us that share our values. Um, you mentioned earlier the, the attrition rate with the number of uh, business startups that don't make it past the first sort of year or two, and then there's not many businesses that then get through that and then grow in the way that, that you have. Um, what 
what are some of the, the, the keys there? Because there must have been, you, you, you've explained the model really well, um, but there must have been some moments along that, that journey where you've, things have gone horribly wrong, presumably, or there, maybe there's been a, a mistake. Are there some sort of points of tension that you might reflect on and explain how you managed to get over those points? Yeah. Um, well, if I think about it, oh, I'll pick out a few. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we were a family business way back then. Um, in fact, what the bit that I missed was Rod couldn't afford to pay me, so I left to get myself a job. And then he tempted me back over a bottle of whiskey. And he said, will you come back and work for me? And I said, if you give me a BMW convertible, I'll think about it. And he did, so I came back. Um, and we... So we've adapted the model, and it's grown over the years. We got to a point where we were a lifestyle business. We all went to the pub at lunchtime on a Friday. We all had great sales trips, and we were a lifestyle business, no doubt about it. But then we wanted to get a bit of what happened was, this was probably the first point, Rod and his wife divorced, and myself and my husband were divorcing at the same time, a similar time, and it was... A while later that um, Rod and I got together. Um, but you can imagine, for those of you who are divorced, it does attack your financial health. <laughs> and, you know, there, we, we, had to, we had to get some money in. Um, and Rod and I got together, and, you know, his daughter and my daughter were friends. They said, if I asked if my mum asked you, my dad asked you, mum, I wish you'd say yes. I said, no, my mum said yes. <laughs> and, you know, bearing in mind, we'd worked together for years. So eventually the kids kind of got us together because they were best friends. And, um, but we, you know, we, we needed the money because, you know, our money was tied up in, you know, my home and I'd give half that to my husband and, you know, he lost his home with his swimming pool and, and all of this good stuff. So we thought, you know, what are we going to do? It, you know, I'm being as, as, as honest and candid as I can here. And so we thought, well, we'll list the business. So we decided we'd float the business, and we floated on AIM. Oh, my God. Are any of you listed on AIM before I say anything else? <laughs> well, we were there for five years, and no matter what we did, and every single one of those five years, our profitability increased and our share price remained the same. So no matter how well we did, and we were very small shareholders at that at that particular time and so we weren't the management weren't getting the benefit of this you know the dividends were being paid out but not to to the the management team so we thought we we're going to do something so after five years we decided we would buy the business back um so rod myself and andy um along with the help of private equity who's andy Andy's our co-director, and Rod, Andy, myself have been right. together for years, right. forever, um, in the business. And we were the last deal on the stock market in 2009. We got over the line on a technicality. It was that close. Had we not done it, we'd have probably been rubbished in the city because Rod and I went round the shareholders and basically saying, we want you to sell. And they didn't want to sell because they were getting really good dividends because, you know, they were the, the main shareholders. And they were quite happy because they were income stocks. But we weren't happy and they weren't giving us bonuses. They weren't giving us stock. They weren't giving us anything. And all of a sudden, they all decided, oh, well, why don't we just give you this and we give you that? We said, it's too late. Uh, we had moved on mentally by this stage. So some of the fund managers said, yep, yeah, they'd sell. And one or two, a few said, no, they wouldn't. They didn't want to. 
we had to get 75% to get over the line to force the others out. And there was then a competitive bid came in and they wanted the share register and they were trying to buy up stock and we were trying to stop them. And they wanted to see the share register and we had 24 hours to give it to them. So I said to Rod, give it to me, I need to have another look at it. And I said to Rod, Andy Crossley, he's got FDM shares. So he said, I'll phone him. So we phoned Andy Crossley and said, Andy, you've got FDM shares. He said, no, I've sold them. I've got Ford Motor Company. We said, no, you've sold the wrong ones, Andy. (laughs) You sold sold Ford Motor Company, you've still got FDM shares. (laughs) If we give you a premium, will you sell? He said, of course I will. Uh, Yes. He sold and that was it. So the others had to fold as they were the last trade in the stock market in 2009. And uh, so we became a private company. And we have a philosophy at FDM where we like to share the equity amongst the staff. And even now, we give 1P share options to all our staff uh, on an annual basis if they've been with us for a period of time, right down to the receptionist. And the great thing is that moment allowed us to do that because from that point, we became, along with our private equity partner, the main shareholders. And we started, we actually paid off our debt within 18 months, which is unheard of in private equity world. And we started paying dividends, which is, again, is unheard of because our business throws off a lot of cash. And after four years, we thought, look, you know, the shareholders, the fund, you know, the, the, fund, the private equity fund, they, they need to get a return. And so we sold again, we listed, and the private equity company got 16 times money, which upon the back of that, they won so many awards for PE Fund of the Year. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, Hope they took you along to the awards. <laughs> well, we great. I mean, we were so suspicious of private equity. My God, the private equity guys, because nobody wanted to know us in private equity world because we have this hybrid model and they couldn't understand it. And ECI nearly got into bed with us and they backed out at the last minute. Dunedin nearly got into bed and they backed out at the last minute. And then our private equity partners came in and, oh, we gave them a real bad time because we were... uh, Inflection. Um, And they were quite a small company at that time. So, you know, we were sort of battling out. My my job was the legals to to battle that out. And... um, then I remember Richard Swan saying to me over a drink about two years later, he said, tell me, Shelley, he said, why did you choose inflection? I said, do you really want to know? <laughs> I said, because nobody else wanted us. And it's true. Now, the ones who didn't want us, much later when inflection got their 16 times money, I remember um, they said, We're, you know, you're the one that got away. And another fund man, a PE guy said, no, I stopped banging my head against the, the desk, you know, congratulations. But, you know, they, they didn't understand the model and they weren't prepared to take a gamble. We knew it was a good company. So, I mean, back when you were outside that chip shop in, in the rain eating pickled, <laughs> eating pickled onions, onions. Yeah. <laughs> would you ever have imagined that you'd end up doing something like this? No, not at all. <laughs> you know, I think that if you think about my background from, you know, this very unsophisticated, very simple young girl from the village to joining the police force, sort of trumping about being one of few women. You know, the, the police force gave me discipline, they gave me resilience, um, you know, kind of give you a bit of backbone. Um, the Middle East, which is great fun, get it out of your system. And, you know, also, you know, I learned a lot about management because you move up so quickly, if, mm, you know, mm. in the Middle East in that airline. Um, and about discrimination and 
inequality and all of that stuff and how unfair. By the time I got back to England, I thought that was the norm. You know, that we just lived in such an, a world that was full of discrimination and inequality. Um, and I, I think that all of those things actually make you the person that you later become. And you never stop sort of changing and morphing into something. Yeah. And all of those experiences will bring something to you that there'll be at some point in your life you think, that actually has helped me because um, I'm a great believer in that. And, and as mentioned at the beginning, you've also helped, uh, done a lot of work to help other women in terms of, of business and championing uh, the, the role of women in, in sort of higher positions in, in, in various sectors. So why is that so important to you? And, and what are you doing on that front? Well, we have three daughters who all work in tech. And um, they, you know, one's in Hong Kong, one's in Australia, and one works for Morgan Stanley here in London, but they're all in technology. None of them studied technology at university. university. In fact, Elena studied sociology, and her dissertation was, is pole dancing exercise a sex exercise? <laughs> <laughs> and she what works... What conclusion did she come to? <laughs> well, she had no end of people wanting to prove her dissertation. <laughs> So we had three girls, you know, who are in the late 20s, early 30s. And, you know, we can see the world through their eyes. And, you know, I, I wanted the working world, the corporate world, to be kinder to them than it was to me at that point. I mean, even now, when, you know, I go to events, you know, events in the city, you know, where often they're just full of men. And somebody will say, so which one's your husband then? <laughs> <laughs> Do you ever get that, girl? And, you know, it's... You know, it's still very male-dominant, uh, the corporate world, and you have to sort of fight your way through sometimes. And, but you can also, we can use it to our advantage, let me tell you. It's very much a women's world at the moment. I do think there's discrimination against men at this moment in time because we have all these International Women's Day, Women's This, Women's That. So we're in a great place, plus companies are often targeted to get more women in, but they're not targeted to get more men in. Um, so, you know, I do feel sorry at times for some of the fellas. However, um, you know, I'm very well placed nowadays to help um, more women. And I think, you know, we have an obligation if we've done well to help give the next generation a leg up to make their journey a bit easier than our journey, perhaps. And you're nodding, so you obviously think the same. And, you know, I, the mistakes that I've made along the way, perhaps some of those could have been avoided if I'd had a role model or if I'd had a mentor. I mean, my role model was my husband. And, you know, he's my greatest supporter as well. Um, and he's really helped me a huge amount. But I've never, apart from that, never really had anyone that's kind of guided me through. So I can do that with other women um, and men as well. And, you know, I, I'm, I sit on a, a, the Tech UK board, uh, just another um, diversity inclusion board. I um, chair the, uh, it's a Theresa May initiative, the Institute of Coding uh, Industry Advisory Board. And that's really interesting because I invited 18 leaders of industry from Microsoft, Google, Shell, you know, CIO, CTOs, and without exception, every single one said yes, they've joined the board and they have done and they attend, you know, each of the board meetings. So, yeah, I'm in quite a privileged position. So why wouldn't I want to help? I, I do think that if we've done well, then we have an obligation. Don't you? Absolutely, yeah. And, um 
you obviously have a, a wonderful marriage with your husband, uh, a strong relationship. Any tips for any other married couples who might be running businesses on how to juggle the two? <laughs> but it, you know, it's a funny thing because my husband and I, we are in fact the only executive directors in the whole FTSE 350. Um, now, the city doesn't like that. That's the first thing. However, remember, it's a husband and wife team and, ma and many others who've built the business. So, you know, tough. Is that too bad? <laughs> but, you know, I think if, it, if the business was going poorly or if there is a time that it does and hopefully not I think we'd probably be the target be the first thing to mm. go the husband and wife team so we're under no illusion but um, I think that um, you know in fact recently we spoke together at a, an event I was invited along and I, to a, a it was a, a business owners event and I said well, why don't you come with me and he's he's a great speaker my husband and he's great off the cuff and I couldn't get him to practice and I said to him, come on, you've got to practice. No, no, I know what we're going to say. I said, well, you might know what you can say, but I don't. So we went along, and the chap who was speaking in front of us, he had these brilliant slides, and he'd taken great detail over his slides. And my husband turned to me and said, shit, we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, OK, you talk about the numbers, and I'll talk about other things. Just let, let me lead this. I said, right. And so he played his part. And I was quite honest, and I said there was maybe about 150 in this room. I said... If you're wondering what we're going to say, so am I. I have no idea what he's... And people said afterwards they were so nervous sitting at the edge of the seat because they didn't quite know what was coming next, and neither did I. And, but um, I think we've worked together now for 29 years. Um, we've been married for 12. And so we know each other well enough that uh, we could pull it off. <laughs> Uh, and uh, I mean, you said earlier that you were running a lifestyle business, but you've got all these all these things you're doing. You're growing a bit massive business to various other interests. You also did a, an MA and MBA at Brighton University as well. Why, why did you feel it was important to, to find time for that too? Well, are you all graduates in here? Everybody's shaking their head. <laughs> well, remember, you know, I left school at 17. I did some O-levels. I did some hires, as we have in Scotland. And then I, I went off to become a police cadet. So I'd never really finished the, my education. And then I went to the Middle East, and, of course, that wasn't a, an option. And it, it was, I was always in my mind that at some point I'd kind of come back and reloop and just, you know, go, go to university and get a degree. It was... Did I need to? No, at that time. Um, but it was just one of these unfinished business things. And so I, I lived in Brighton, so I signed up to Brighton University, and my mother said, oh, they're not going to let you in because you, <laughs> you, you haven't got the right qualification. I said, oh, wish mother. <laughs> and I applied. And they, they, they accepted me onto the M, it was the MA marketing I did first. Now, at this point, I had two young children, very young children. So I used to get up at five in the morning. I'd do two hours of writing or research. And then I'd get the kids up, take them to school. I was the UK sales manager at that time in FDM. So I'd do a day's work at FDM, pick the kids up, get them home, and then go back into Brighton and go to university from six till nine at night, twice a week. And I, I kind of... I zeroed out my life. I said to all my friends, you're not going to see me. I'm sorry, this is important. And I literally, something had to go. And so I just sort of X'd out my social life. So I did the MA marketing and I was a bit disappointed with some parts of it because, of course, by the, I th maybe, maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was the, the, the marketing director at that point. I must have been the marketing director if I did MA marketing. And 
I kind of, I think I wanted to be able to put a label and a theoretical model onto some of the practices. I wanted to know if what I was doing was the right thing, did it, you know, or was this just me making it up as I went along? So it kind of put it all into perspective. And after I did that, it gave me a certain number of exemptions for an M MBA. So I thought, well, I might as well just get one of them as well. <laughs> so I stayed on and I did an MBA. And in fact, following that, I became an ambassador of the university. And in fact, this year, they invited me to the, the graduation of the business school to do the, um, the keynote speech. So again, I've kind of um, gone full circle from being um, a, a student, uh, a master's student. I didn't have time to do the undergraduate degree. <laughs> I just had to go straight into the master's. And so I did, uh, to actually be, being the headline speaker at the graduation and an advisor to the business school now at uh, Brighton University. Yeah. And also we sponsor uh, 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 an, MA, no, an MSc in Applied Computer Science at University of Brighton, which we pay for too. Right. right. So the candidates don't have to pay for anything to go through that degree. Been really fascinating, Sheila. Thank you. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed that, and the time has flown by. So a big round of applause for Sheila. Thank you. Spot the organ. There's a game I hope I never have to play. Thanks for listening. I'll be back again in two weeks. To find out more about the Scottish Business Network, simply visit sbn.scot.